we always were a nation of immigrants, just most of us came from one part of the world or a similar part of the world and a similar kind of culture. The country, the systems, the culture that became Australian was understandably based in that. Yet the most recent census data tells us half of all Australians have at least one parent born overseas, 48.2%, in fact. And around 20% of us speak a language other than English at home. These are people who are no less Australian than anybody else, but it's pretty easy to understand how it would be hard to fit in. We have a culture that consciously and subconsciously values whiteness, a culture with a bias towards job applicants with Anglo names, a culture that sometimes, begrudgingly, tolerates immigrants coming to our country, but only if they do the jobs that white folks don't want to do. With women in the workforce, there's what's commonly known as a glass ceiling. You can ascend to a certain point in a corporate structure, but never quite get to the top. I'd put it to you that there's a glass wall between people in our community who were born here and have been here for a long time, contributed to our community and to our country just as much as anyone. There's a wall between those people and the true access to what our country has to offer, the lowest level of which is to be accepted as an Australian. But I can only speak from the perspective of a white, straight male that grew up in the safe suburbs of Brisbane. Sure, I am an immigrant. I've got a funny last name, but I'm white. So I was accepted. I look similar to everybody else. It's fine. To understand the experience of millions and millions of people who are a part of our country and contribute to our country and will be a part of our country's future, it's important to explore, to listen and to be with how uncomfortable the story of their experience as an Australian might make us feel. Us being other whiteies like myself. Thankfully, for all of us, people like music journalist Manyo Bobo are sharing their story. Manyo's story has some epic music, I've got to say it. And that music goes along with uh, some harsh realities of what our country is like. When you've grown up as a kid who was born in Ghana and then moved to Musselbrook in country New South Wales. Manyo's book is called Hip Hop and Hymns. And Manyo Bobo is my guest this week. Before we get there, This show is free to listen to. It's not free to make. So there are some ads that we play to pay the team who work on the show. There is an ad-free version of this show, which you can get on Patreon. I'll tell you about that later. However, depending on where you're listening or how you're listening, you're either going to hear some ads right now or boom, we're going to go straight to the stuff. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One very high-profile presenter said to me, Oh, where are you from? Now, that question, Osho, confuses me. It confuses me because I don't know, I didn't know whether he meant where are you from as in where did you work before you got to Channel 9? So the answer to that question would have been SBS. Where are you from in terms of where did you grow up? The answer to that question is Musselbrook. Where are you from in terms of why are you black? The answer to that question is Ghana. I mean, I didn't know what he meant. And I had that confused expression on my face. And he's like, come on, like, tell me, where are you from? And then moving forward, he asked me that question again about a year later. I'm thinking, why? (laughs) That is music journalist and author, Manya Bobo. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Better Than Yesterday. G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to help make your day-to-day better than yesterday. We do it by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them experts in their field, and every one of those chats, chats that go all the way back to 2013. Every one of those conversations has something in it that will either make you reframe or realize or go, oh, and then your day ends up better than it was the day before. That's it does what it says on the box. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And I'm grateful you're listening to this show today. So thank you for being a part of this. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I am a, what am I at the moment? I'm a, I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a gluteus medius exerciser. I'm an anti-inflammatory drug taker. I'm a bicycle rider. I'm a fess fesser. I'm an uncomfortable sleeper. I'm a hot bath haver. I don't know what Epsom salts are, but I put a lot of them in the water. Don't care if it's a placebo. It feels nice. And um, yeah, I'm grateful you're a part of the show. So thanks heaps for being here. You can always get in touch with me. It's super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you for your lovely, lovely feedback about Dad Pod. Dad Pod is back. Charlie and I are back and we're very, very happy to be back on air with Dad Pod. Some of the conversations we're having, some of the experts we're getting on the show are really good. So if you're a dad, a mum, dad, or a dad-to-be or 
know a dad or have someone in your life who's freaking out about a dad and they want to hear other dads that aren't dumb fat dad from the TV now talking about being a dad, check out Dad Pod. You'll find it where you found this podcast. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But first, let me tell you about my guest today. Manya Bobo is an Australian music journalist. She's an author, born in Ghana. She moved to Musselbrook when she was just a kid, eventually finding her way to New York City and then back to Australia. Currently, Manya works as a music and pop culture reporter for Double J Radio in Australia and also ABC News. Her new book is a memoir. It's called Hip Hop and Hymns. It's a glorious account of life as an African-Australian living in regional Musselbrook. It's a story of a church-going hip-hop fanatic. His family immigrated from Ghana and moved to regional New South Wales. And how do you fit in? How do you assimilate? Rules are different in regional Australia. Her experience of racism, not only of the systemic racism of our justice system, but also racism in her journalism career, it's dark. It's hard to listen to. It's hard to read but it's important that we understand it. Manya shares her personal battles with mental health and I guess what it was to achieve or trying to achieve a delicate balance of life between the deep faith in her church and the hip-hop music and culture that she loves. Before we get to the chat with Manya, just a little heads up. We do talk about mental health and when Manya's mental health was quite bad, And the talk of self-harm does arrive. If that brings anything up for you, please um, call Lifeline if you're in Australia, 13 11 14, reach out to your GP, get some help, talk to someone, take some action. Because the world is better off with you in it. Clearly, as you'll hear, what happened with Manyo on the other side of that moment in her life. Manyo is a very important voice in Australia, a voice that speaks to identity, what it is to be an Australian, and a voice that speaks to race in this country. She's on Twitter regularly. You can find her, Manyo Bobo. That's spelled M-A-W-U-N-Y-O-G-B-O-G-B-O. The book's called Hip Hop and Hymns. Enjoy the chat. Hey, Manyo, I'm here. Um, nice to see you. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm great. I'm on the I'm on the Golden Coast, which is uh, a little south, probably about an hour's drive south of where I did most of my growing up. Where are you uh-huh. right now? Right now, I'm in Sydney, but that's not where I grew up. So I grew up in Musselbrook, New South Wales. For people who who don't know, uh, where's Musselbrook? Musselbrook is in the Upper Hunter, so it's in the Hunter Valley. It's probably Three hours and a bit drive from Sydney, mm. going north, slightly northwest, in an inland part of New South Wales. So no beach. There was no cinema there when I was growing up either. So, yeah, it's just a lovely part of the world, but a little bit boring when you're a teenager. <laughs> I'll bet. We, we have uh, something in common uh, Manyo, and that we both were not born in Australia, but people give a fairly large amount of less fucks about me not being born in Australia than you, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> what part of the world were you born in? I was born in Ghana. So 
Ghana is in West Africa. It's a beautiful part of the world. It was the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to gain independence. It is rich in natural resources, so gold, cocoa. It is stable democracy. It is a peaceful country. It's funny because I say all this because people assume that because I'm a migrant and they know that I'm a migrant because of the way I look, they assume that I've come here because of some sort of strife from back home. But that wasn't the case. Mum and Dad came here more so for a bit of a sea change, really, you know, like moving from Newcastle to Sydney or Sydney to Newcastle, except they went on right on the other side of the world. Yeah. So basically it's such a beautiful country. Yeah. And I write about some of that in my memoir, but I make the point that we're not here because of a refugee status or anything like yeah. that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's just not my story. Yeah. I mean, nobody asks that of when I was growing up. I had some Dutchies come live next door to us and nobody asked the Dutchies if they were fleeing war. They were fleeing a shit economy. They weren't fleeing war, um, but nobody asked them. You know, they're just, oh, you're here, great. You know, yeah. But we have, we have this kind of narrative in Australia that if you're anything but white, you're coming here because you are trying to escape some strife. But it might just be wouldn't mind living in a different kind of society. We'll see what that's like. And that's yeah. rad, you know? Yeah, so the story how my parents ended up here is that Dad and his friends were looking to migrate somewhere. I mean, Dad wasn't even that keen on leaving Ghana. He had been to Germany. He had studied in Germany. He had um, gone via the UK. So he had travelled outside of Ghana. And he was cool with staying at home, but his friends were really keen to get out of the country, see the world, and so they all got together and one of them said, hey, we should try Papua New Guinea. There are black people there. We'll fit in. And they tried. They called the PNG embassy, but they were told that PNG didn't take migrants. Try Australia. They're thinking, oh, Australia. Well, you know, we hadn't thought of that before. Um, but anyway, to cut a long story short, they did try and it was back in Malcolm Fraser's time when he was really pro-immigration. But this was about a decade after the white Australia policy had ended and yeah. they found it reasonably easy to get into the country. I mean, it's certainly not yeah. that way now. No. But People yeah. forget that about about Malcolm Fraser, who was the uh, the coalition, the Liberal Party mm -hmm. um, leader after Whitlam, and that it was the Liberal Party who, at the click of a finger, mm -hmm. essentially saved thousands and thousands of Vietnamese people fleeing war. And as a country, we went, "You guys, let's help you come say, come be here." And we opened our hearts and we opened our arms and we they, they chartered planes and they evacuated people and they brought them all here. And overnight, bang, Vietnamese community in Australia. And that was a yeah, Liberal government. That was a Liberal government. People get it twisted, I think, because mm. 
by the time we got here, there was a Labor government in, Bob Hawke was in, and I know my parents have tried to bring relatives over. They haven't been able to. Ah. So, hmm, you know. Yeah, the, narr- <laughs> the narrative changed. The narrative changed a fair bit. Uh, I'm, I don't know enough about my Ghanaian uh, history. Who did Ghana gain their independence from? The British. The British. The cl- oh, okay. Right. Because yeah. there was French, the French and the, the Euros all kind of getting in on Africa. Quite yeah, a bit there was there. a lot going on. There was a lot going <laughs> a lot on. Going so, on. especially in Ghana. So, the Portuguese were in there. You know, there yeah. were slave castles in Ghana. Uh, so, people were kept in dungeons, in these dungeons, uh, before they were transported to the Americas, the Caribbean, the UK. And they, they're tourist spots now. You can go uh, and actually walk through these dungeons and see what these people went through, where they were kept, and mm. you hear about the atrocities that took place there. And it's so, I mean, it's incredible, but it's really emotional as well. But that's, that's a little bit of the Ghanaian history is that yeah. um, it was a port where the passage, people would go through the door of no return, and yeah. that was it. They're separated from families, separated from the, the countries they were from, separated yeah. from their culture, and having to start new lives, really. Um, well, not really. It took many, many years before they yeah. could really start new lives because they were slaves. And we yeah. all know, or we should know by now, what that entailed. Yeah. And, and that it, it did happen here. It absolutely happened here. I went to school with kids who were um, uh, the grandchildren of uh, what they called uh, South Sea Islanders who mm-hmm. were brought to Queensland. I'm in Queensland right now. They were brought to Queensland to, oh, they, they're here. The narrative was, oh, they came here to get, they came here because it, there was jobs on farms. So, well, you know, they didn't really have much choice about whether they'd get on the ship or not, and they certainly didn't have much choice about if they could leave. Yeah, they call that blackbirding. They call it blackbirding, absolutely. Yeah, they call it blackbirding, and it was pretty um, pretty grim. It's not like this stuff is, oh, that was the before times. no. Nin- 1967 is when here in Australia we'd have a referendum that the country agreed, well, maybe, yes, we should consider Aboriginal Australians as human. You know, there's people alive right now that voted for that yeah. or against that, you know. So mm-hmm. it's not ancient history. This shit is, is with us every single day. And I'm sure that by the time when you when you landed in, in Musselbrook, how old were you at the time? I was four years old. So I oh, went right. to preschool there and kindergarten, high school, so on. So, <laughs> so I did all my schooling there. I was quite yeah. young when we arrived. Um, yeah. So my formative <laughs> years were spent in Musselbrook, that's for sure. Oh, boy. I can only imagine you coming home to your mum and dad going, hey, mum, what does this word mean? Yeah, well, there were really isolated incidents of racism that I experienced in Musselbrook. Um, mostly after a few years, you know, we'd, we'd, we were there for about 20 years in the end. So by then, you know, we're part of the furniture. People get used to you. People yeah. people 
know the bobos and respect the bobos and love the bobos. But there was there were definitely incidents of outright racism as well as racism that was a little bit more insidious. For example, there was a situation where I was dating a guy, we went to a cafe. Basically he wanted KFC for for lunch and I couldn't think of anything worse because I was on one of my ridiculous diets at the time and I'm so against diets now because diets don't work. But I was on a diet, he wanted to eat KFC, so we went to KFC so he could get his chicken and then we went to a sandwich shop so I could get my more healthier sandwich and we walked in. I said, hey, can I have a ham and salad sandwich, please? The woman looked at me. We don't have that here. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, you've got ham, there's ham over there, there's lettuce, there's tomato, there's carrot, there's cucumber, there's beetroot, there's even loads of bread behind you. And I started to sort of like point that out and she just looks at me. I said, okay, well, how about a tuna and salad sandwich? We don't have that either. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's go. Let's split and try and find another sandwich shop. So we went to walk out and the guy in the line behind me, we could hear him ordering, can I have a ham and salad sandwich, please? Yep, coming right up. So <laughs> incidents like that are obviously minor in the scale of things, but you remember them because they're just so, they stick in your mind. My boyfriend at the time was shocked into silence, yeah. just like I was. But neither of, neither of us could really quite believe what was going on. So we left the sandwich shop. And I don't think we, that day we could find another sandwich shop in Musselbrook. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, I had to miss out on my sandwich. But there were incidents also when I was in primary school. So I had to sit next to a boy in class who every day he would call me the N-word, say all sorts of stuff about black people, you know, in a negative manner. And I didn't stick up for myself. I asked the teacher if I could move. The teacher said, no, you know, these, these were arranged seating arrangements. And I put up with his abuse for an entire term. And when I reflect on that now, it's why I'm so, so outspoken and so ready to call out anybody who wants to try that mess on me today. Nobody's going to get away with that sort of thing today. No. And Manya, when I hear you describe this boy sitting next to you, I can only but reflect upon my own time going to primary school here in Queensland in the late 70s and the early 80s when I just heard the things that I heard growing up in Queensland under Bjelke Peterson and the jokes that the other boys would tell were always, you know, the punchline was always a Aboriginal Australian and, hey, mum, check out this joke that I heard today. And it had come out of my mouth and she'd go, what? <laughs> I, I just didn't know any better because those were, you know, I'm five or six 
you know, and I don't, I've never seen a person that's not white in my life. And these are the jokes that I've been, you know, I remember them word for word. I have a brain like that. I remember them word for word now. And these were the jokes that would make, you know, I heard other kids tell other kids and they made them laugh. And I thought, oh, I'll make mum laugh home when I get home and I tell her this. And so when I think about that young boy that talked to you, part of me is like, well, that's his parents, man. That's just, well, you, you know, know that's the his funny folks thing. not pulling him up. The funny Pardon? thing is I knew his sister. So his sister was in the same year as me. And yeah. because I was in a composite class, he was a year older. And oh, yeah. his sister used to say things to me like, oh, you're, my dad thinks you're so lovely. Even when he sits on the toilet, he goes on about how nice you are. And I can <laughs> n- not recall ever meeting her father. Like, it was bizarre, completely bizarre. Yeah. Near me, there's a there's a billboard on a bus and it shows a parent talking, a father talking to a son about respect and the son looks around eight or nine, you know, because clearly they've identified this is the point where you need to speak to young men about women and, you know, what respect is about and, you know, boundaries and things like this. Um, but that's, I, don't, I don't see that around, you know, you know, skin colour or, or, you know, ethnicity. But, look, we can only hope. We can only hope. Don't worry. I, I took my lessons later, Manya. I learned, I learned pretty quickly that there were some things I shouldn't say. And I learned pretty quickly about – Well, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a kind of the, the, the weird permeating nature of this stuff is if, if you don't know what you don't know. And growing up surrounded by it, I didn't know that anything was different. Like I said, I was like six or seven, right? But it was only once I got to be, and my parent, mum's going, no, 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 no. Like mum and dad kind of really pulled me up on it. And, and, you know, certainly as I, as I grew older and I started to, you know, see a bit more of the, you know, the city and then, you know, once you get beyond only, you know, I only go where my mum and dad take me to, then I can now take a bus and go somewhere and start to see different people on the bus and different people on the train living in my community and then starting to get to know different people as I went to school and, you know, that sort of stuff starts to, starts to come, but definitely the, you know, the understanding of the, the, you know, the humanity of other people uh, at that time in my life was just, it was just not there. But it was also, it, it permeated through everything, you know, the primetime TV. There was fucking Kingswood Country on TV, all right, yeah. which is definitely like those punchlines that had the word bong in them on primetime fucking television. And everyone, ah, ha, 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 it was hilarious. You so know, this thing, is like. The thing with that is that is the, what I was calling, calling like the outlandish racism that you, you, you see. But then the other racist thing about television is the fact that it's so white. Yeah. And historically it was even whiter. I mean, yeah. I've been in the media industry for 20 years, Osha, 20 years. My goal was to be a television presenter and a journalist on air, on television. It's interesting because I was talking to my cousin yesterday when I had my book launch and she reminded me of a conversation we had quite a few years ago, so maybe 15 years ago. And I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and telling her my goals for the future and saying how much I really wanted to be on television and 
how I wanted to cover important stories and do do that with my voice. So basically I've worked as a producer for a long time where I worked really, really hard to put together briefs and do all that research and then hand it over to somebody else to present. I wanted to be the person doing all that work but also presenting my own work. Yeah. And my cousin, who's Lebanese, she married into our family, had said to me at the time, do you think Australia's ready? <laughs> and I said, of course, you know, why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? And she reminded me of that conversation yesterday and said, so how do you feel about, you know, what we discuss, discussed back then? And I said, well, you were right. Yeah. You were right. Australia wasn't ready. The question is, are we ready now? It's 2022. I'd like to think that the part, the course has shifted well and truly. I lived in uh, Los Angeles for about 10 years, Manya, and then I, um, and it, uh, you lived in America as well. You turn on the TV and the ads on the TV, it starts with the commercials because the commercials are probably the easiest thing to get over the line versus, you know, a TV host or a, a casting in a, you know, a long-running, you know, drama or sitcom or whatever. But the commercials looked like when I went down the road to the Ralphs or the Home Depot. That's the commercials. I'd see Hispanic families. I'd see African-American families. I'd see Asian-American families in all the TV commercials. Like, but do you know why that is, Osha? Like. Yeah, they, they legislated it. It was legislated. But not only that, but the fact is businesses got to the point where they realised that their customers are Hispanic, their customers yeah. are African-American, yeah. their customers oh, are Asian. <laughs> the free market's a wild place over there. They kind of, oh, we're losing money here, Chad. I know what we do. Let's get Jose in. But uh, look, that's if that's it's unfortunate. That's, it's like honestly, Manu, it's like it's like the renewable energy thing. It, it's it's it breaks my heart that it's the economics that's driving it right now. But I'll take it at this point. Um, uh, it's like it's it breaks my heart that it was the economics that drove those kinds of decisions. But as a kid growing up, if you can't be you just can't be what you can't see, right? And to come back here and to see that change, to see different skin colors on toys, and to see different ethnicities in commercials, ethnicities in commercials, to see um, uh, different faces presenting on some networks, different faces presenting, uh, different people cast as lead actors in things. Because I would, you know, I'd, when I got back, I think 2013, I, after just being in the States, I came back and turned on the telly. I'm like, hang on a sec. And I go down to Westfields and it's like every color of the rainbow. And I turn on the telly and I'm like, well, of course people think their country's being taken over because their view of the country is through the TV. But that's not real. What's real is what's happening down the road, the shopping mall. And I'd like to think that's starting to come a little closer together. It's not where it could be. But I'd like to think it's changing a little bit. A little bit but we've got a long way to go. We're not moving we? quickly enough. I mean... What would you like to see happen? I would like to see me not get getting blocked from opportunities. People like yeah. me who look like me not getting blocked from opportunities. I mean, there was a situation going back now because I said I've been in the industry for 20 years, yeah. right? About 15 years ago, I was applying for jobs on-air jobs, so producers slash presenter jobs. And 
these were early career positions. So you didn't need to have TV experience. You just needed to, to be a good journalist, be able to write, etc. I was applying for these roles and there were multiple roles, Osha. It wasn't just one role. It wasn't just one position that was going. Multiple, multiple positions were advertised. When I was applying for these positions, my boss at the time said to me, there's no way you're going to get one of those jobs. There's absolutely no way. And I sort of looked at him. I said, it's that same old thing that I had with my cousin, you know. Well, why? Why do you think I wouldn't stand a chance getting one of these jobs? He said, look at the people getting hired and look at you. There's something that they all have in common that you don't have. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, they're all blonde. I said, oh, I'm sure I'd still be in with a chance. He said, what, you and all, your, you and all the blondes? And he was clearly frustrated about what was going on and also frustrated about the fact that I couldn't see what was happening right underneath my nose. And then the guy that was doing the hiring asked my blonde friend why she wasn't applying for the roles. And she said, what about Mario? She really, really, really wants to do this. I'm not ready. And, you know, he just sort of looked at me and sort of looked back at my friend, you know, because I wasn't blonde enough. (laughs) And 15 years later, I haven't got that TV experience that I could have had had I been given a chance back then, making it so much harder for me to do that sort of thing now. I mean, it it affected my future. I mean, at the moment, I'm getting opportunities on TV and radio because I'm backfilling the music and pop culture reporter at Double J and ABC News, which means that I pop up on television every now and then to talk about stories I've written for online or I hop on the radio and talk about those stories. But that's taken how long? (laughs) (laughs) And at what cost, you know? That's one example. That's me, right? Mm. People assume that black people aren't in these positions because we may not want them, we may not be trying hard enough, we may not have the skills or the talent to do it. None of that is true. We are here. We exist. We are trying. But there's a glass ceiling is preventing us from getting that. It's as simple as that. You spent some time at the Nine Network as a, a SEG producer on the Today Show. Um, that must, and I've, I've been uh, in those halls. How would you describe the culture there? So I had a situation where one very high-profile presenter said to me, oh, where are you from? Now, That question, Osho, confuses me. It confuses me because I don't know, I didn't know whether he meant where are you from as in where did you work before you got to Channel 9? So the answer to that question would have been SBS. Where are you from in terms of where did you grow up? The answer to that question is Musselbrook. Where are you from in terms of why are you black? 
The answer to that question is Ghana. I mean, I didn't know what he meant. And I had that confused expression on my face. And he's like, come on, like, tell me, where are you from? And then moving forward, he asked me that question again about a year later. I'm thinking, why? <laughs> like, firstly, you should already know. Secondly, because I've told you. And secondly, it just made me feel like I didn't belong there. And then a guy from marketing or whatever, sales or whatever, was saying to me something along the lines of, oh, you kind of stand out here, don't you? <laughs> a bit different to everybody else here. But again, these were isolated incidents. Yeah. And mostly I had colleagues who were amazing. I mean, before I went to nine, I didn't know just how well I could write. When I was at nine, people every day, my colleagues would say, no one can write an intro like Marnie. They called me Marnie there. Marnie, your writing is so beautiful. Marnie, you have no idea how to put together a to-do list, but, man, you can write your socks off. (laughs) I now know how to put together a to-do list, Dosha. But basically I had never received that type of feedback about my writing before. I had only ever got criticism. And when I got to nine, I realised I had a gift. I realised I had something special. And I thank those colleagues for Mm. their encouragement and for pointing out something that I really didn't really know at that time because that, when I realised just how good I can write a script I can write all sorts of different things. I mean, I go from writing song lyrics to writing this book, you know. So um, basically that type of encouragement just really, really helped me in terms of my confidence because my confidence was quite low by the time I got to nine because of a variety of other things that had happened throughout my career. To to just step back a second about, I think it's important that we point out that there's, there's a misconception that our community and our society is a meritocracy. There's a, a misconception that, oh, the people who do that job are the best at it and that's why they have it. And I think it's quite clear that the best the best person that they've ever had writing there can't get on camera doesn't look like that's fucking, that's clearly pointing out that that's not a meritocracy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I did want to be on camera. I tried. Yeah. I tried. I talked to, I was in the building. So I had access to people yeah. at the top. Yeah, yeah. And I tried. Don't you worry about that, Osha. Like I didn't just sit back and write my scripts and that was it. I was talking to people. I was showing them, you know, stuff I'd done previously because I'd done things like, host live at five on the um on the television station at oswego suny oswego state university of new york at oswego which is where i studied for a semester i've done things like that and so i had myself yeah. on video and i had done work experience at places like yeah. prime television nbn television but in terms terms of cracking television for real it was just impossible 
It yeah. was just impossible. And I tried. What was it like? I, yes, I, I can hear the frustration in your voice and it's frustrating to hear it, you know, it's really, because then I think like, well, how, you know, how would that, you know, selfishly, like, well, how would that change the media landscape that I work in if there were more people that didn't look like me on camera? You know, what pressure would that put on me to get better at my job? Because my job's at the moment mostly just under threat from other white guys that look like me. All right, that's I'm a very lucky person to do what I do because there's not many people in contention to do this job. Then, but they all look like me, right? Um, but if there was more people putting that pressure on, it would push me to be a better, you know, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I would want to be even better. Thing. I'd try to get, yeah, yeah. But that's a good thing. No, it's, it's exactly it? like it increases yeah, yeah. the standard overall, yeah. Um, exactly, and that, that's I think that's what I'm trying to get at. What was it? I mean, do you have this part of your story? I mean, the, the book talks a lot about hip hop as well, which I, I adore. Um, what Audrey and I are currently digesting the Kanye um, Cootie's Kanye documentary in like 20 minute chunks, and it's one of the most fucking incredible things I've ever seen. It's so good. It's just amazing. It's so good. I mean, I the can ne- relate the Netflix to one it. Just. I could relate to the Just, struggle, you know, Kanye wanting to be yeah. an artist. Oh my God, when and, he's at the Rockefeller party and then all this, yeah. when he's in Dame Dash's house and he's playing in the record and Dame Dash is like, hang on a sec, walks out the door, puts on his tracksuit, says, come on, man, we've got to go. It's like, the song you're listening to right now is about to be, it's about to sell 4 million records and you're walking out the door because you've got some party you think you want to go to. Yeah. Like all these people just look like fools because they just didn't take him seriously. But what I love is that there's a part of your career that took you to America and as as an African-Australian living in country, essentially rural Australia, to go from there to the fucking Source magazine, <laughs> like the epicenter of what, like all, like how how much white culture is appropriating, you know, black hip hop, like everything, right? To go to like this, literally the source of everything that white people are trying to copy to to in music, in in culture, in dance, in you name it, in videos, you name it. That must have been unfucking believable to suddenly land in that office and just look around you and go, well, not only do I not stand out here, I'm like fucking, I'm in it. Like that must have been amazing. It was incredible. And I was so young at the time. I mean, 21. What do you know at 21? You know, (laughs) you're just a kid really. And I was more of a kid than most people are at 21, I think. But it was an incredible time, yeah. In your in your book, you talk about how the, the wheels kind of fell off a little bit um, around around that yeah, time. Yeah, so I'm very honest in my book. Like I really go into depth about certain things, about identity crisis, crises, about mental health struggles, about love, and you know, I mean, there are a few sex scenes in there, Osha. But when it comes to the identity stuff. I really struggled while I was in America because I'd grown up watching African-Americans on television and listening to them on the radio and watching them in music videos and stuff like that and loving what I saw and also identifying with them on a level where I thought our history was exactly the same because they look like me. 
they look exactly like me. And then when I'm in high school, I discover that our shared history was actually quite different and that African-Americans don't know where in Africa they're from. Yeah. And I do know where I'm from. I'm from Ghana. I was born in Ghana. Mm. And that was a real struggle learning that because I'm thinking, well, I'm different even from the same. I'm already different from everyone around me and now suddenly I'm different from the same. And then because of that, I felt that I couldn't be proud of my identity and my background Mm. because these were the people that I looked up to and I wanted to be just like them and suddenly there's that difference, so to speak. So when I was in New York, I wanted to fit in, basically. There was a situation where I didn't broadcast where I was originally from sort of thing. And I look back at that now and I basically think, what a shame. What an absolute shame because Ghana's praises deserve to be sung. Mm -hmm. Ghana is an amazing country and to not have that pride in where I was from is really a shame. To, to have felt that way at the time. And I described that in my memoir. And the problem is, though, Osha, there are people who read that and read into it in a different way, people who don't understand that struggle. For example, someone did a review on my book. They isolated a tiny little paragraph from that section where I'm struggling with my identity, put it at the top of their review, didn't explain it, not that they could because they're not a person of colour, didn't explain it, and then wrote their review underneath that. And I was really upset about that and really taken aback by it because it was taken in isolation, it was out of context, I had written a mass, like maybe two pages afterwards about why I am proud of being African now and why it was a struggle then. But all of that was taken away, it was stripped away. And I feel like it's so important to read the book in context because everything is in there for a reason. And there are so many things at the beginning that you find out why they're in there at the end, and it all makes sense. This was an Australian review. Isolate a little paragraph. It was, yeah. Yeah. This leads me to ask you because I, I've kind of been interested by this, but as someone who's in a unique position to kind of have a perspective on the situation, I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say. How has um, African migration to Australia and the uh, incredibly valuable contribution of African Australians to our our culture, our economy, our education system, how has that changed Australia's, I guess, conversation around 
black skin in Australia because previously black skin in Australia meant you're a First Nations Aboriginal person, Aboriginal person, and there's a great shame of this kind of dispossessed, degraded, dehumanised. It's like it's unspeakable the attitude towards that. Um, so yeah, how how has how has African migration to Australia changed the conversation around black skin uh, in Australia? I don't think it has yet. I don't think we've got to a place yet, Osha, where the conversation has changed or has evolved to a point where it makes sense because there are still no African Australians on mainstream programs. You've got two at Channel Channel 10, so just two at Channel 10, right? And then that's about it. There's no one else. You've got a a couple of people at SBS. But the fact of the matter is we're so invisible in this country that it's really hard to have a voice in the media. It's really hard to present ourselves in that nuanced way, the fact that we're all different We're not a monolith. We're all incredibly different and have varied experiences. And that's why I think it's so important to have a book like Hip Hop and Hymns because this is one experience of an African Australian in this country, one. But there are so many more that haven't been told. There are so many great storytellers who haven't had the opportunity that I've had to tell my story. And what I want to show is this is one story. There are so many more. Yeah. And I don't want people to pick this up and think this is a basically a blueprint for black people in Australia. It is yeah. not. Yeah. It is not. And I think the conversation around black people in this country is ridiculous because black people aren't included in that conversation. That's that's the that's the wildest thing, right? Is that you know to you know you you'll see people post a meme. It's wild Australia's this weird permeation of certain aspects of our community who kind of don't see that American politics starts and finishes at the American international border, that somehow we are affected by and involved in American politics. And they'll share memes about, you know, um, uh, you know, oh, can you believe these seven guys right here, these seven white guys are making decisions about women's rights in Texas, for example. And it's quite obvious, like, well, they're making choices about uh, women's bodies. None of them are women. That's ridiculous, Okay. Yet in our own country, the concept of uh, First Nations, you know, voice, permanent voice to parliament. It's like, well, come on, we have a democratic for a reason. What? You know, the idea of nothing about us without us, uh, um, it's in so many aspects. You wouldn't dream of of having a uh, shit. You, You wouldn't dream of trying to design a building uh, to be wheelchair accessible without someone who uses a wheelchair every day to be a part of that design process, would you? 
Well, I would hope not. You would hope not. I'm sure we did in the past, but you would hope that people who use these accessible facilities would be a part of that conversation. I don't understand why it's not indifferent. I don't understand. Why do you think so? Oh, well, I don't get it either. <laughs> it's it's structural and institutionalised racism. Let's call it what it is, Oscar. That's what it is. And that, that's, it's, that's, that's a tough thing for people to hear in that the, the ways and the cultures of workplaces and the laws that have been written kind of in their own way, in the same way that an Instagram code might, a bit of algorithm might push more kind of extremist content the way of someone who likes clicking on, clicking on gun control stuff. This stuff is kind of baked into how systems work, how someone can access services, how someone can access the healthcare system, how someone can get an ID, how all this kind of stuff. And it deliberately or undeliberately disadvantages people who aren't white. Yeah. I'm all about uncomfortable conversations. Mm. I want people to read hip hop and hymns and feel uncomfortable. I want people to read it and get to the point where they think this is not right. Yeah. We need to change certain things in this country. And that change starts with me. That's what I want people to feel when they get to the end of this book. Because the way we're going at the moment is not the way we should be going. We're going in a direction that we're just coasting along, you know, doing our thing. People of colour are at a disadvantage and being marginalised in this country and people who are white, basically some of them don't realise that they're still benefiting from the structures that their forefathers put in place. They don't realise that that's at the detriment most of the time of marginalised communities and they're okay to just coast along and feel like everyone has the same opportunities, everyone starts from the same place in the race, and they do not. We are not the same in that way. And it's about time people realised that and did something about it. I w- I- thoroughly agree with what you're saying and I am someone who has benefited from these systems and these structures yet I also know and I think this is the other this is the lie that has been told is that if everyone has access to the things that I have access to then there'll be less for me no there's more pie than there is pie chart it's not it's it's not how it works (laughs) See, the thing is, I'm not sitting here saying that you haven't worked hard for the opportunities that you've had. I'm not sitting here saying that you haven't worked your butt off for everything that you've got. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I have also worked my butt off and yet I have not reached the lengths, the great lengths, like the heights that you have. And that's not from lack of trying. And I agree with you entirely. So that's yeah. all I'm saying. Oh no, I, and I agree with you. I agree with you completely. And no matter what industry it is, you know that's that's the case. And 
And as, as, as I said before, you know, it's, I also don't feel it's right that this is the case because I think, well, what are we missing out on? We're fine for other cultures to get in on a food court. Like, I love a good pho. I'm down with some Vietnamese soup. Hit me with that. You know, I'm, I'm good with hummus. And, I, you know, <laughs> we're fine for other cultures to get in on our cuisine, but hang on, workspace? No, 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 no. This is kind of really the domain of, you know, us over here, you know, because we got here first. Well, sometimes I sit in meetings at work and I look around at the other people in these meetings, all great people, all mm. wonderful people, but I'm the only black person in these meetings. And these meetings, there are a lot of people in these meetings, right? And I think to myself sometimes, wow, how? Wow and how? Like how did you install yourselves in every position? And why don't you feel bad about that? (laughs) I don't want us to go down the, what you said before about the, you know, the, what American companies came to the realization of, of like, geez, we're really missing out on that, you know, giant Latino market in California. We better put, you know, Jorge and, you know, Juanita in our bank ad because we can give them a home loan too, you know. Um, Yet, I think it's important to recognize, I think one in four Australians have one or both parents born overseas and one in five Australians speak a language other than English at home. Now, that's not reflected in, in workplaces. And, and, and what are we no, missing out on? What are we missing out on not having that? Not having those rich ideas, not having those different ways of doing things, not having those different perspectives. What are we missing out on by excluding that? from our businesses, from our planning meetings, from the way we run things. Like there's so many more ideas that we are shutting off and there's so much possibility we're missing out on. And in our industry, Osha, the fact of the matter is you're talking about commercials. Well, 3D air television, the numbers are dwindling, right? Yeah. There are a lot of people of colour in this country and they will vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. If they can't see themselves on television, do you think they're going to keep watching these shows where they can't see themselves reflected back at them? Or will they gravitate towards Netflix and Stan and and programs that are being filmed overseas where they can see themselves? There's a great example of um, of that in the uh, I don't know, maybe this just before the rugby league season kicked off this year. Um, there's a Instagram account, um, you know the rules, y- YKTR. And generally, I mean, you look at the NRL, there's a lot of Pacific Island uh, involvement in, in the NRL. As you know, there's, you know, a couple of guys who, uh, you know, there's a lot of Pacific Islands, a lot of First Nations. And, you know, these, these guys, they run this extraordinary channel and they have really, really great conversations about football, about, you know, the ins and outs of, of, of league and the ins and outs of signing and who's moving where and who's going what. And they broke this massive story about someone moving to another club. And the kind of uh, rosy-cheeked kind of, you know, floral-nosed, ageing rugby league journos over in, you know, the kind of mainstream print media lost their fucking minds because 
Never before had that kind of news not broken through their outlets. But what you're talking about, that down, people voting with their feet, well, whoever changed teams, their manager knows where the money is. Their manager knows where the viewers are. Their manager knows where the fans are. Their manager's like, no, that interview, it's happening over there. Let's go. And, you know, it just, it just that's what happens when you reflect your audience in, in the message you're saying. But I will say, my, like, as my wife is Fijian and, you know, growing up, she came here in 87 um, when she was a, girl, a little girl. And every time that a commentator gets a, a, a tricky multisyllabic uh, Islander name right, they go, good on him. He gave it a solid go. <laughs> Get pretty happy about, which yeah. is you know because yeah well it's and that's that's important you know I think it's it's important that it's so important know. I mean names are so important I mean my name has meaning Manya it means God is good my mum says to me every time you say your name you are declaring the goodness of the Lord wow so my name has meaning and that's why it's nice when people say it properly no and. It's funny, Osha, because I received this racist email. Everyone who read it, I'm not just exaggerating. I'm not just saying it was racist because, you know, I'm using that word lightly. It was the most vile email I've ever seen. It was disgusting. And one of the things this person said in this email is, Mario Bobo, who... What self-respecting Australian would have a name like Manio Bobo? My name has meaning. I'm proud of my name and I will continue to use my name because it's my name. I mean, (laughs) and when people say it properly, that means a lot to me at the end Uh, of the day because it's my name. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here, Manyo. As uh, someone who underwent a rather aggressive uh, <laughs> rebranding a couple of years back, I'm all about it. <laughs> Osha Tell means me happiness. about it, right? Osha, Osha means happiness. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's what it means. You mentioned that Manyo means God is good. What role did, um, I guess, religion and the community of the church play in, I don't know, keeping or not keeping you, you know, upright? Through, uh, through your life and your career? <laughs> um, who said I was ever upright? <laughs> that, that is a fallacy. Let's just put it on the table right now. There's no uprightness in this, you know, sphere at all that belongs to me. Um, so I am a Christian, but I'm a very bad Christian, Osha, and I will admit that. I'm a very bad Christian, but I call myself Christian because I believe in God and I can see how he has ordered my steps. I can see how there are certain things that have happened that if there was no God, there's no way I would have been able to get through these things because I didn't do it on my own. I didn't do these things by myself. There are so many reasons why I believe there's there's a God. But in terms of being upright, I think that is what the world expects of Christians, to be perfect. But I don't think that that's what God expects 
of Christians. Maybe I used the wrong word. I, mean, I was I was thinking more like how does how is that and and particularly because I'm quite fascinated with the effects of not just you know, I go to church when someone I know gets married or dies or gets baptized and then for Easter and Christmas, like that's it, maybe four times a year tops, right? I'm talking like being a part of like a weekly gathering of a group of people, there's probably food, um, you know, people know your name, you know their names, they know your mum, you know their mum, being a part of that sort of situation and how did that um, affect the pathway, I guess, uh, and, and give you some, did it give you some sort of foundation or give you something to hold as, well, this will always be here or I can't wait to get away from it? I have always loved church. I mean, even the churches that I went to in Musselbrook where sometimes the pastor wasn't so animated and you may fall asleep every now and then, but then the hymns come on and jolted awake and, I love hymns and I've always enjoyed church. I mean, when I went to America, have you ever been to a gospel church, an African-American gospel church in America, Osha? I, I didn't get the chance. There was one down the road from my house in uh, in Venice when I lived there and I would sometimes linger outside on a Saturday and listen to the singing, a Sunday and listen to the singing because it was just I remember as a kid. Let me tell you. As a kid, I watched the Blues Brothers and they do that scene where James Brown's the pastor. And I was like, now I want to go to that one. That's like an old, not an old man in a dress feeding me blood and telling me that, you know, I'm a sinner and I've been a sinner since I was born and I'd better be fucking sorry right now. Otherwise, I'm going to burn. That looks like way more fun. <laughs> they are incredible. Oh, my goodness. It, you just get swept away. The joy in the room, the music, the laughter, the fun, the, oh, it, it just makes you feel like God is good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because these churches are just so amazing. I just, like, you know, you've got, the pastor breaking out into song <laughs> when he gets excited with his sermons. The, and, and the message, the message that you hear when you go in there, I mean, usually I feel like that message is directed just towards me. You feel like the pastor is just talking to you mm-hmm. because you can relate to what's being said. It's just incredible. It's so amazing. <laughs> the the one time that I there when I one of the times that I ran the Los Angeles Marathon that takes you through South Central and there was a point where we turned this corner into Inglewood and um, on the forecourt I guess of a gas station there was like the they had a they had a Hammond B three organ out there on the concrete they were running off a little Honda generate uh, generator and there was a, you know two drummers and two bass so it was like a full thing it was there and the choir everyone was wearing the same shit and the 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 I'll never forget it because the, the 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 pastor was going run and they're going run 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 <laughs> they were singing that to everyone running past and it was fucking mind bending because the the other thing is someone who loves music you know I'm uh, growing yeah. up in Brisbane you know I'd always go like I'd see like oh my favorite bass player because oh yeah, yeah I came up I knew that drummer from gospel and I da 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 I was like what's this thing what's this gospel thing I was like all oh, right you jam for like five straight hours every week. 
improv over the back of what you're saying, like when the pastor just starts kicking off, they go, all right, well, let's just go. And then they, they kind of follow along and they just kind of make it up as they go and then everyone's on board. And this, this musicianship that has been born out of this scene has given us as a culture, like the amount of pop music that we're listening to that has directly come from the, the I'm talking to musicians, mm. the chord structures, the melodies, the call and response, all that stuff came out of gospel. And yeah. I just, oh, thrilling. Would have been thrilling. So yeah. thrilling. So yeah. thrilling. <laughs> would, have, would have been great. Is there? Is that still in your life now? Well, I'm not in America, so. No, I mean, sorry, I mean like the, <laughs> the, rela- the relationship with um, the relationship with church. Is that still in your life? Yeah, so I don't have what Christians call a home church. Mm-hmm. I do belong to a church. I did join a church, but I haven't been to that church for a while. I sort of go to church more occasionally. So not as occasionally as you. So not Christmas and Easter. And oh, I don't go at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah, so I still, I, I still go to church, but not every single week. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is I just haven't really found my community just yet in church here, but I still listen to sermons on podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, religious podcasts. I pray. I read my Bible. I have this um, instructional Bible. So basically you read a verse and then underneath it, it will explain what that verse means because sometimes the Bible can be a little bit difficult to understand. Let's face it. Mm -hmm. It will explain what that verse means and then how it relates to your life right now. And I'm loving going through that because I have already read the Bible from start to finish. And the way I got through that the very first time, I mean, Osha, I had, don't think this is, um, you know, that I'm special or anything because I had the one-year Bible. I was trying to read. It's called the one-year Bible. No. It took me six years to get halfway through it to June. It took me six years to get to June. So, like, you know, I'm not um, saying that I'm really good at reading the Bible. I'm not. (laughs) But how I got through the Bible from start to finish the first time around was there's this thing called the Bible experience. And it's a whole heap of mostly black actors. Denzel Washington. Um, I think even Snoop Dogg is in there uh, from memory. Um, there, there were just a whole heap of um, entertainers who were black. It's a dramatised version of the Bible that they read from start to finish. And this was back when I had an iPod. You scroll on your iPod and you can read mm-hmm. along the the words on the iPod. I mean, that's how I got through it the first time. And it took me a year and I just, every day I'd be on like listening and scrolling through the Bible on my iPod. And it was such an incredible experience and I learned so much. And now I'm starting it again from Genesis and going through again with this instructional Bible. I learned as I got sober, I learned there's this great line that they teach you, just be quick to see where religious people are right. And I've always tried that, you know, since I, 12 years ago, since I stopped drinking, I used to be quite 
resistant because of what happened when I was younger. Um, and so whatever it is, whether it be mostly monotheistic, but, you know, Islam or, or Christianity or Judaism, just tr try to see what, what, the, what the benefit for that person is in that and what you can gain from that because it's not just for them. And so I'm really yeah, grateful well, that, you, that you have that. A really great pastor once said, I heard a pastor say, people don't turn away from God, they turn away from the people of God, the people who claim to be representing him mm. and doing nasty, nasty stuff. That's why so many people turn away from the word. And that's sad. That's really sad. And I get what you were saying before about, you know, um, and I know you said that this isn't what you meant, but, you know, about being good, so to speak, for lack of a better word, being good um, in terms of being a Christian. But I also say we're all human. Yeah. We're, we make mistakes. You know, in Christianity it's called sinning and I'm very good at that. But at the end of the day, if your heart is there for the Lord, then does it really matter what anybody else thinks? Back in a moment with Manya Bobo. Just going to play some ads here to keep the lights on here at the show. If you are in the mood, I'd love it if you could check out Dad Pod. Dad Pod is a podcast by dads for dads who don't want to be shit dads. Now, Charlie Clawson and myself have been making it for a couple of years now, and the new series is really good, and we're really proud of it. We're finally hitting our strides after nearly three years, man. Uh, but it's, yeah, super duper. You can find it where you found this podcast. If this podcast does bring you value, Look, the best thing you can do for us is to like, share, rate, subscribe, wherever you can. Let other people know about this show. Text them or send them a message or tell someone about it. Really, really helps us. If you'd like to support the show in a more meaningful way, you can get an ad-free version of this show over on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. There are full video episodes. I am a, a little behind in my workflow with the full video episodes, but Andy, who uh, cuts everything, is, is well and truly on the way to making all of that happen. Patreon.com slash Osha. We're going to wrap up our chat with Manio Bobo in just a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I really relate to the part of your story where after this, you know, years and years and years of very successful career, you suddenly find yourself unemployed. And uh, the same thing happened to me. I was 40 and suddenly I'm like, oh, fuck, I've got no job and I'm paying rent out of my savings and this is shit and terrifying. How did you get through that and what did that 
bring up for you? What did you have to learn about coping in that point? Oh, my goodness. So I actually wrote an article about this around the time of the COVID shutdowns because there were a lot of people out of work. I had experienced unemployment prior to that, much, much prior to that. But I could I could empathise with people who were going through unemployment as a result of COVID and they're really struggling. And I wrote an article and I'll share the feedback I got from that article. I mean, people were so touched by it. I got messages saying I really needed to read this at this point in my life. You gave me the inspiration I needed to keep going. You know, so many messages I got along those lines because I poured my heart and soul out, as I do when I write (laughs) about personal experiences. Um, But that time when I wasn't working, I was really, really down because I basically had been working since I was 14 in six months. Now, you need to be 14 in nine months to work in this country, Osha. But I had started prior to that. So, and I had never been without a job. I'd quit a job and go straight into another job. Mm-hmm. I found it quite easy to get work. And then there was this period where suddenly I quit a job and then I'm looking for a new job and nothing is happening and I'm really struggling to get a position, and I'm really, really trying really, really hard applying for jobs in my industry, but then also applying for jobs that could have nothing to do with my industry. I was applying for retail jobs because I had worked in retail as a youngster, and I couldn't get those jobs. And so I thought, well, I'm going to apply for retail management jobs and I got an interview for, for one of those, but I still couldn't land these positions. And I was so depressed, I thought about taking my own life. It got to the point where I thought it, it really, really affected me. And the way I got through it, I mean, there were so many ways that I got through it, but my family were amazing, you know, helping me out putting money in my account. Um, Mum came with me to a jewellery place where I sold my jewellery and she said to me, remember this day because one day you will look back at this and you will smile and think, I got through this. I was able to get through this. And I had situations where I was calling Centrelink, I was on hold for, you know how it is, like you're on hold yeah. for a million years and yeah. it's it's this the type of situation where you feel like when you do get connected and then suddenly the phone disconnects, you just feel so, it's gut-wrenching. You're just like, yeah. oh, my goodness, like I've just waited three hours and now... I get through and the phone cuts out. Like it's just like yeah. all these things were happening at the time. And I guess I um, got through it by writing a list. You know, I'm really good at writing lists now, Osha. 
And I wrote a list of the things that had I not been around 10 years ago, so it's a pretty morbid list, had I been dead 10 years ago, what would I have missed out on? What happened in those 10 years that I would have missed out on had I had not been around? There were things like I would never have known that the love of my life loved me too. There were things like I wouldn't have my own apartment that I'm sitting in right now writing this stupid list. Now, then I put a list of things that I could still do in another 10 years, things I'd like to experience, like having my own child. And I decided after writing that list that life probably was worth living and I was going to stick around. But it was a difficult, difficult time and I took it particularly hard because I had a new mortgage. I had only just bought a place. I had a new car that I had only just got. So I had responsibilities and it was tough. It was a tough period to get through. But in the end, I did get through it. I got another job. In that period as well, I had people helping me out. Like a good friend of mine had started an Indigenous production company. Now, I'm not Indigenous, but she employed me to work for her production company. And when I was saying how much that meant to me, she said to me, no, you were helping me. I needed help at that stage. I mean, she made me feel that I was worthy of something, that I, I, the fact that I was able to work in her production company at that time meant so much to her and it also meant so much to me. I mean, things like that. I mean, I was doing yeah. volunteering at Story Factory in Redfern where they tutored mostly marginalised children in writing. I had been volunteering there for quite a while and that they employed me to do some work with them during that period. And, I mean, it still brings tears to my eyes now. I mean, I'm really quite emotional at the moment just thinking about all the people that helped me out during that period and made me feel like I was okay, that I was worthy of, you know, being here, basically. But isn't it interesting when you find it, and I can relate because I've been in that situation, Manya, but isn't it interesting how when you're in that moment, your brain, for some reason or another, mm, convinces you that all those things in the last 10 years either never happen or don't matter, all those things that you want to happen in the next 10 years will never happen who you're kidding and that nobody else cares. Now, none of those things are true and they never will be true, but that's a bizarre symptom of being that down, that your brain shuts off the possibility of positive, of a positive aspect of, of what's happening. And I'm, A, I'm very grateful that you didn't take a, a you know, seek out a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But I'm also really grateful that this extraordinary writing that you have was something that helped you 
push your brain to look mm. beyond this kind of dark curtain that it wrapped itself in. And I know because I've been in that dark curtain and see outside of that and then be open to your mates who are helping you out and go, actually, there is, yeah, there's, I can help another person. And by helping another person, they're helping me. And this help, that person helping me is helping them and challenging those thoughts. And that, that's really powerful stuff. And I'm so grateful to, to be able to talk to you about it because people might, like I said, you can't be what you can't see. And if, if people have never heard that's a pathway from that place, they may not realize it exists, but now they know what to do because you just told them. That's awesome. <laughs> Write a list. Write a list. Write a list. <laughs> You're the best, Manyo. I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with me this afternoon. We've spoken for ages, but you just, I'm just so grateful I got a chance to speak with you. Um, oh, thank yeah. you so much Unreal. for speaking with me, Osha. It's such a thrill to be <laughs> speaking with you and I've had so much fun in this conversation. Thank you so much for thinking my story was worth telling on your podcast. <laughs> and that was Manya Bobo. The book is called Hip Hop and Hymns. I get it where you get your books, however you get your books. Manyo's on Twitter all the time. It's very interesting. M-A-W-U-N-Y-O, G-B-O, G-B-O. You can also hear her on Double J and just search her name on the ABC News website. You can read all the articles that she's written recently. I'm really grateful she came on the show. It was great to speak to her. Thanks heaps for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. If you want to get in touch with me, super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. Also find me on Instagram. I'd love to see where you're listening to the show. Just shoot a photo and send it over to me. Check out Dad Pod if you could. It's great. I love making it. And um, I think it's full of really interesting stuff. And no matter what stage of parenting you're at, I reckon you'd learn something. I certainly do every week. And I've been at this game for crikey eight years now. Thanks to everyone that helped us make the show today. Bruce Steele on research and support. Andy Ma, who cut everything together. Toe Hyder on music and the executive producer of The Lot, Rachel Barrett. You are awesome, Rach. All right. I'm off to um, find a neti pot. <laughs> Sorry. Too much information. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm.